Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Woo! All right, we are going to have some fun today. Would you like to lead us in to the one-armed man? Uh, you know what? I can uh, lead us in. I've I've got my I've got my tape recorder. I've got my little dictaphone. Hello, horror vanguard listeners. It's special investigative podcaster John, otherwise known as the Lit Crit Guy. Here, I am continuing the ongoing investigation into the cultural phenomenon occurring in small town America called Twin Peaks. Joining me, <laughs> joining me as ever. My dear friend and co-ghost of the show, Ash, how are you? I am doing fantastic today, mainly because we get to talk about, I think, one of the more exciting episodes, or at least an episode that I've always really loved, The One-Armed Man. I, I think this is a super exciting episode. I think this is a really exciting episode. And I think it, this is where the show, this is, on, on the formal level, this is where the show starts to kind of experiment with some differences it has a new director um yeah Mm -hmm. other than lynch and it's not written by uh by lynch either first of the series to be written by robert engels which is an amazing an amazing name for for a writer for us yeah yeah perfect for (laughs) us uh directed by tim hunter what what do you think what do you think about this on the formal level well we should we should we should talk about Hunter's directing, I think, first, because he's clearly drawing inspiration from a a genre that hasn't, you know, pressed its weight into the world of Twin Peaks yet, right? There's a lot of Fallen Angel in this. There's a lot of the fugitive inside of this episode of Twin Peaks. And I think one of the reasons I find this episode to be really exciting is that not only from the, the, the scripting and the writing, but also visually... Like this is this is a new episode. This is something very new inside of Twin Peaks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do you want to do you want to maybe explain a little bit about the connection to Fallen Angel? Yeah. So, uh, Fall, Fallen Angel is a movie from the forties. I think forty five? Question mark forty five. <laughs> and it used a lot of small sets, but it also used a lot of. Uh, it played around with depth of field in a really interesting way, right? Ch- changing how certain items and shots were focalized, shifting the, de- the depth of field back and forth to highlight different characters. And we, we see that going on a lot in here, especially when we get to the um, parole hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the scenes, and in the diner as well. Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a, some really interesting use of split diopters here where you can keep multiple uh figures in the frame in focus even if they're at different lengths mm-hmm. um yeah who who is what what is what is that kind of stylistic um semiotics supposed to communicate then do you think so what i find to be really interesting in this one is when we're in the parole hearing but so, so when we're in the parole hearing, right, we've got Norma in the far background. And we've got Hank in the foreground by the parole board. And, you know, we're, we're able to shift the depth of field back and forth with these characters. But it, it, it lets us visually see how isolated they actually are from each other. 
and how despite the fact being in the separate being in a separate room despite the fact that they're married that they they are fundamentally they're as disconnected as two people could be they're not in each other's lives in, in a way that's coherent or connected um and you know like and we already at this point in the show we know that norma and ed have have a deep and loving relationship but they're both stuck married to people who aren't good for them and this just really it's just a, a beautiful and simple way to use the visual language of cinema to convey this even further what are, what are your thoughts on the split diopter i think what's interesting particularly about the connection to otto preminger um is that this places twin peaks within a new kind of genre a little more explicitly um mm-hmm. which is which is like the american tradition of film noir um, and yeah. what's, what's super interesting about film noir is that it emerges out of German expressionism. A lot of those mm-hmm. M, you know, the classic uh, Weimar era piece of filmmaking, um, Dr. Caligari, and a lot of those directors obviously go to America to get get away from Europe at the uh, in the 30s and 40s. But like they take those techniques with them and film noir shifts from having camera angles which show the world as being distorted and kind of strange and alienated to um, that alienation as a mode of subjectification. So it's about the kind of internal psychological crisis of being a person at this given time, right? And it's not a surprise that that emerges at the points of crisis for America, both politically and historically. You know, it's so Twin Peaks has been playing around with like melodrama, it's been playing around with soap opera, and now it starts to play around with like film noir. And it's and it's all done through the language of cinema. And and I think I think like one of the great strengths of Twin Peaks is that it, it doesn't have the it, it doesn't take a monster of the week approach to this cinematic diversity. You know, everything is is still fluidly interconnected, and there isn't a jarring break between one style and the other. It's not like we have the film noir episode of Twin Peaks and then the soap opera episode of Twin Peaks. You know, every everything just kind of emerges naturally from from like the I don't know, like pulsating chaos that that, that is the bed that Twin Peaks rests on. Yeah, I mean, th- like this episode even ends with a Dutch angle, which, uh, according to Tim Hunter, who's the director, that shot was forbidden. <laughs> like <laughs> Lynch, like no, you're not allowed to do that. Right, no. Uh, but he was the only person who got away with using a Dutch angle, and it's like, of course, because it's a, this is a classic film noir technique, right? So mm-hmm. Of course, should be called a Deutsch angle. You know, it's a German. Never <laughs> mind. Gets called a Dutch angle because of its because uh, of the its translation. But like, it's cool that this is this is the only time it gets used, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's that's part of the things that makes this episode so special and so exciting. Shrug. <laughs> There's also the the development of this idea of duality, uh, which is a big thematic concern, I think. Uh, introduction of Maddie, who yep. strangely looks very similar to another key character. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> what do, What do you think about how this how this kind of thematic of duality is being? pushed forward so so this is depending on how we're counting the first or the second of the many doppelgangers in the world of twin peaks that we encounter uh laura palmer either had a doppelganger that we met in the lodge earlier or that was a dream or that was completely unrelated 
But in any event, uh, this is like the first major doppelganger that pops up in the series. Common, common recurring thematic. And what, what I find so interesting about Maddie's character is that she's kind of the, the pure inverse of Laura Palmer. You know, like Laura Palmer, you know, like in, in the parlance of Twin Peaks itself, very troubled. And, and here we have Maddie, who is like the most uh, quintessential down-to-earth small-town American girl you could imagine. Yeah, uh, paired opposites, right? Contradictions embodied into subjectivity itself. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. And, and I think what, what makes it really interesting, too, is that a lot of the doppelgangers in Twin Peaks aren't just total inversions. You know, they're, they're, they're variants on a theme, right? Like, Laura Palmer was also the quintessential, you know, like, small-town American teenage girl. She was just a variation on the theme, you know, by by the time by the time we get to Twin Peaks: The Return and we have Evil Cooper, you know, he's not the pure inversion of of Detective Dale Cooper. He's he's a variation on a theme. You know, he's Cooper in a different key. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. I really like that. That's a great way of putting it. Why? Thank you. And you know, another great way of putting it would have been for me to say. Horror Vanguard, Patreon, please subscribe, patreon.com. <laughs> I've never screwed one up so bad. <laughs> no, I think... Patreon.com. I, I think we have. I think we have. This is... I mean, as as segues go into getting people to Ooh, think about... That was rough. Getting us to, people to think about supporting us on patreon.com slash horror vanguard. I think that was pretty much... That's, that's as good as we've gotten at doing this. And you know, you know, honestly, that wasn't a mistake. I should rephrase that. Uh, that was a variation on a theme. That that was my delivery of the Patreon plug in a different key. And if you want to hear things in a different key, you can get early access to our episodes at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, as well as other little fun <laughs> bonus content, access to the Discord. And and who knows, maybe maybe we'll even show up and walk a llama in between you and someone during a very important conversation in your life. We have to talk about the llama. I love this as kind of like emblematic for how the Lynchian as an aesthetic expresses surreal, expresses the surreal, right? Surreality. Because like, isn't, isn't this just the way it goes? You know, like one, one day, dear listener, you will be having one of the most important conversations in your life. And like, I don't know, in the background will be a guy making balloon animals and that'll get burned into your mind for the rest of your life. Or maybe you won't even see it. You, you know, like like the, the, the world in which we live is just like so odd and fluidic and chaotic. Like the, the llama thing really reminds me of there's like that classic psychology experiment where, where it's uh, you, you watch a short like five minute video of, of people passing a basketball back and forth. And your goal as the participant is to count how many times they pass the basketball. And then, of course, at the end of the experiment, you're asked, how many times was the basketball passed? And did you see the man in the gorilla costume walk into center frame, dance, and walk out? And most people don't wind up seeing the gorilla. <laughs> yeah, do you, think people, do you think people don't miss the llama? But it's almost impossible because I think the show is deliberately... To kind of borrow your analogy, it's like the show is deliberately breaking yep the counting to to draw your attention to what's li- quite literally foregrounded 
Yeah, it, it literally bumps our two characters out of the way to to pass a llama through the shot. Oh, that is so... That is Because that would have been a perfectly serviceable and fine shot without the introduction of the llama. It would have accomplished everything it needed to do and we could have moved on. But bypassing a llama through the shot, it, it all of a sudden gives it so many more angles. It changes the texture and the shape of what's going on here. And I think this is part of the magic of of kind of like these projects that David Lynch works on and gets to be the creator of is that you, you could strip out these elements and you'd have something that this would have been a perfectly serviceable detective drama from the nineties, but then you get all this other stuff in here and, and that, that adds so much dimensionality that changes the shape of things. It reintroduces this kind of wonder, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a very subtle and very humble little rupture asking us to kind of like, Go like, wait, why the hell did a llama just walk through the shot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I think we should talk about your your favorite character, your you, the the one that you are kind of spiritually connected to. Yeah, we we need, we need to talk about my Twin Peaks doppelganger, the Log Lady. <laughs> you are. I'm kidding. I would be so lucky. No, I I do firmly believe that you you are the you are the Log Lady of this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I accept the, the massive responsibility of this charge. I must now go get a log that will talk for me on the show. I mean, well, I mean, you handle the talking, obviously, but the the log. Oh, is that's just, true. That's true. The log is just there. I, I I've yeah. always assumed. I've always assumed that you've had a log next to you. I mean, did you just so okay? Last night, I woke up at like two a.m. just just in a frenzy because I had I had the most vivid and and horrific and weird dream wherein I wrote an essay about animatronic apes in cinema and simulacra and the spectacle and it would be par for the course would it not if I also had I don't know an inanimate log that I communed with <laughs> to get my film takes well I mean the whole point is that there is no such thing as the inanimate right yep uh, mm-hmm. there is like uh, to be Lynchian is to be in a sense a kind of panpsychist uh, to think that all, ma- all matter is consciousness at least on some level Oh, absolutely, right? And, and and the fact that the log, you know, communicates with the log lady and they have some interconnected relationship, you know, like on, on a very surface level, that, that, that can just trouble our relationship to trees broadly. You know, like there, there, was, there was that article that came out a few days ago about a city cutting down all the trees in their town square in order to deter homeless people from resting there. You know, like like our our relationship with trees does not respect the tree as a thing with its own needs and wants. It's a it's a prop. It's like a vase. Yes, absolutely. And and having having the log lady like log comes first. She's defined by the presence of the log. You know, her identity is interwoven into this thing. And I think on a much more interesting level, like the, the same thing happens to all the all of us all the time, right? How how many of us are like smartphone ladies? Or, or like car ladies, right? How many of us have this thing that we perceive as inanimate that winds up inadvertently defining and restructuring massive parts of our existence? Well, how do you how do you feel about <laughs> how do you feel about the log lady's uh, self other distinction, as it were, in this episode? 
So I I really love the log lady's pricey for this episode. Uh, uh, the quote that, that I pulled from that is, are we being introduced against our will? And this is in reference to to encountering the other that is the self when you look into the mirror, right? You, you know, like like when we're forced to engage with with not just other people, but with ourselves, right? Like what what is what does that mean to to for that to be with or against our own agency? You know, the, the fact that we exist means a necessary collision be- between the unknown, right? The, the, these kind of limit experiences, this frontier that's that's caked around us. I mean... And... Oh, go on. I, I think this is this is kind of reminiscent of, of the classic psychoanalytic idea of the barred subject, right? Yep. Um, we we don't know ourselves. This is this is precisely mm-hmm. the point of Freud, right? The, and in fact, the entire point of the show is that we don't know ourselves at all. You know, the 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 visions of community of the small town Americana, or of like of even like subjective coherence, are illusions that we believe and enact simply because to face the alternative is too stressful. Mm. This episode is such a good a good kind of vehicle for that discussion, right? Because we're we're going to get onto the one armed man in in a bit here, and and his presence as another doppelganger that that we encounter, another attempt to know the self, another necessary literal splitting of the self. But before before we do that, we should talk about another man who's necessarily split, and and perhaps the most apt character for for this, Doctor Doctor Funglasses Jacoby. Uh yes, Doctor Jacoby. Um, what what do we think about Jacoby? He's a super interesting character. So I I find Jacoby's character to be incredibly fascinating because there are a few characters in the world of Twin Peaks that have kind of a heightened awareness about the machinations going on around them. You know, and and like J- Jacoby is, in a certain respect, kind of like a quintessential fool of a character. You know, he's he's outside of the structures of, of a lot of what's happening in Twin Peaks, but nevertheless, like he's also defined by his relationship to these other characters. You know, tying it back to the Bard subject, right? Like, you know, J- Jacoby is known for what his his funky red and blue multicolored glasses. You know, you know, constantly filtering the world through a given literal, in this case, framework, right? And and, and with a guiding, you know, like analysis. And oh, it's just it's such a clever character design. What are your thoughts on Dr. Jacoby? Well, he's a kind of worrying question, right? Um, he's he's a uh, he's he has a conversation with Coop right at the beginning uh, about uh, Laura's cocaine addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, "Well, it, it like it was medicating something. It was medicating something, right? Uh, and a dysfunction that is usually that it's usually sexual." And I'm like, "Here's the worrying question: Is Doctor Jacoby one of the people who understands the town of Twin Peaks the best, or the most? So, or, or not, if not the best, then the most clearly?" Um. So I, I think I think like. One of the troubling things that we encounter with Doctor Jacoby is he's not a very pleasant character. No, uh, no, he's he's an he's an awful he's sleazebag. <laughs> yeah, um, an, an, an incredibly terrible person. But in terms of how he sees the town of Twin Peaks, uh, he he has a crystal clarity for a lot of the kind of like underlying 
tensions and trauma that move everything in this town, right? Like the way he plays Bobby Briggs like a fiddle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, later in this episode, especially like, I I just you're you're I think there's a there's a subset of characters that have kind of a an understanding of Twin Peaks, both as a town full of human citizens with real world worries and needs, and as kind of this like interstitial metaphysical space that sits between these lodges that's that's kind of a nexus for cosmic activity uh and, and jacoby's one of them right right jacoby doesn't necessarily have insight into the kind of metaphysical natures of twin peaks but he does have insight into the the psychological machinations that are driving so much of what goes on here yes and this is sort of what i mean right because uh, jacoby is the one who, in a way, this raises some really interesting questions about what this show thinks about the role of psychiatry, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is that for? And in a way, it's about, it's a kind of, it's, it's a regulative discourse, right? It's there to ensure that the kind of institutions of the town's, the town's kind of projected fantasy about itself manages to sustain, you know? Uh, I, I, I feel like, I feel like there's a kind of anti-psychiatry, uh, edge to, to, to a lot of what's going on in the show. Um, you know, uh, Jacoby's talking about rhizomes at one point, Mm -hmm. like there's, there's, it's like, like if he has a, if he has a a picture, a a, a copy of Anti-Oedipus on his bookcase, I am not going to be surprised. (laughs) Well, I I think you're completely correct about because dr jacoby is a horrible scumbag and he utilizes you know if he's if he's utilizing his relationship with bobby briggs as someone who should be his healer to manipulate him you know to to cause him greater pain because that will help dr jacoby and his own goals god knows what he was doing with laura palmer yeah yeah, we get more hints about that later on but he is he is this this is what I mean by the regulative discourse, right? So the disciplinary discourse, the whole point of psychiatry is ostensibly about the enabling of agency. Uh, but, you know, as any good Foucaultian uh, would tell us, as any good uh, uh, Deleuzean would tell us, like this kind of model of psychiatry is about is about d- disciplinary, the overriding of agency, like the the policing of the boundary of normativity. And to do that, it requires someone to be like interested in exercising their own power. Yes, yes, right. Like like psychology and therapy and psychiatry can be wonderful tools that are very helpful for people. However, like all things in the world in which we find ourselves, they're entirely beholden to capital. Like, like capital comes first when it comes to your health, and that includes mental health. And I think, like, a, a lot of Jacoby, a, a lot of what, what he's trying to do, he doesn't really care. You know, he's, he's like the pure manifestation of the, the ultimate cynical expression of this, right? He doesn't care how, how people are doing mentally. You know, he, he just cares that a certain system stays sustained, a system that's incredibly beneficial for him and his desire. Yeah, I mean, exactly. This is, this is like, it's... It's Foucault's birth of the clinic, right? Yep. It's 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 madness and civilization, right? Yep, one hundred percent. It's this idea that there is a kind of there is there is political power here that can be that is exercised in the cynical weaponization and domination of others' agency. Oh, ab- absolutely, and I think it's really telling that uh, to Twin Twin Peaks does not flinch 
and showing that Dr. Jacoby actually has no ability to heal anyone. You know, he's 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 just manipulative. He, he's he's just orchestrating his own desires. And then we look at like how people are healed in Twin Peaks and how that healing actually comes across. And it's like it's it's through Cooper's dream divinations. You, you know, it's it's through these it's through these other potential systems of finding a psychological or spiritual well being. It's it's I mean, outside is, of the apparatus of psychiatry. Yeah, exactly. This is a really good point, jumping off point, right? To because the episode really is about the advancement of the investigation in lots of ways. But it's like, how do we investigate? Uh, do we investigate in the same way as Jacoby, which is which is about the productivity of a certain kind of biopolitical power, a bio mm-hmm. a biopharmacological power, um, or do we do this? I, I, in the notes for this episode, I just call it investigation via coincidence. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's like, this is this is how knowledge is discovered. It's discovered through breaks in normative epistemology. Oh, totally, to- totally, totally, totally. I, I think th- these are really good points. But but since we're, we're, we're getting a little late in the episode um, and we're talking about the investi- investigation, should we talk more about parole hearings and gun violence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I know I know you had some things you wanted to say about parole and systems of policing. Well, I mean, if we, we're talking about a show which is about the failure of institutions and in a sense for for norma having her husband go to prison has sort of uh liberated her right she's found another person that she has a very deep connection with she's able to have kind of agency and control of her own life and like but the prison industrial complex is not just about prisoners it's about what is the effect of prison on the wider social field and it's that's what you see at that parole hearing because everything that that distance gave her is about to be taken away yes 100 percent. And, and i think it's it's a really troubling sequence like like the whole parole hearing right and especially like what, what's going on with ed and norma and their respective spouses like like this episode, in in a way, the one armed man. It's it's about a society that can't take care of itself. It's about a society that is completely, in a sense, dysfunctional, right? Like we 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 have a system where two people in love can't connect with each other because of a massive concrete wall of violence that there's nothing that they can do about because there's no there there's no alternative, right? Like the, the this episode is like very. I don't want to say grim, but this is this is also one of the more brutal episodes of Twin Peaks. I think I think you're completely right. I think you're completely right. Um, and there's something sort of so kind of crushing for Norma, um, realizing that like again, again, it's about those it's about those boundaries of normativity, right? If if you're going to perform the role that these institutions, prison, your job, you know, heteronormative relationships are kind of laid out for you. It's kind of crushing. It's crushing and they don't work, but you're forced into them. You know, you're boxed in like the mise-en-scene, right? It's inescapable. Oh, oh, abso-fucking-lutely. And I think like, 
So, so we have we have a lot of guns in this episode. There's a lot of gunplay going on, um, and and it's just the, the we're not going to have time for all of this. But the gun discourse in this episode is like dialed to eleven. You know, we we've got Andy, a character that we've already established is playing on the periphery of accepted expressions of kind of heteronormative masculinity. Yeah, you know, like like there's there, there's some very subtle queerings happening with Andy's character and and how it's expressed and, and how he moves through the world. And in this episode, he f- fumbles a gun, which goes off when it hits the ground and nearly you know fucks up their ability to go interrogate the one armed man. But that precipitates all all our our three main cops or our four main cops rather: Deputy Hawk, Sheriff Truman, Coop, and Andy going into the basement of the police station to. Uh, do some basic firearms training, and what's the thing that they're talking about while while they're they're shooting their six guns? You know, like the thing the thing that they're talking about is love and their relationship history, and like like Hawk is is talking about the 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 beauty of finding the one person in a lifetime that can truly show you wonder. You know, and like you you, you know his 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 lover has a has a PhD. And like it's it's like this complex, weird little conversation while they're they're training to extrajudicially murder citizens of the United States. Well, I mean, it's like what do gu- guns guns are not just tools, right? Guns have a libid mm-hmm. have a libidinal charge. You only need yes. to look at the way that guns are spoken about in American right wing political discourse to see there's a certain eroticism to them. They are oh, they are yeah, deliberately yeah. eroticized, right? So no wonder it's no wonder that's what they're talking about. If anything, the only thing that's kind of surprising about that conversation is that they're relatively kind of restrained, right? It's actually quite, yeah, it's yeah. actually quite delicate. It's actually you know the the I would you you sort of you sort of like there's a bit of me that expected it to be a lot more crude, a lot more direct. Uh, yes, because that's what a gun I, is. It's a very crude and direct tool for the exercise of a certain kind of libidinally charged sovereignty as it were and, and, and i think i think like there, there's so much going on in that in that firing range sequence right we, we we have we have this kind of homosocial bonding that, that's happening right it's literally men firing firing their guns with all the symbolic weight that goes behind that together right while talking about what they want in relationships what their current dating status is but the the fact that one as viewers we're expecting them to be like, oh, Andy, is your problem in the bedroom, or, or, or something much more crass than that? But their their the conversation stays focused on their emotions, their appreciation of love, what they kind of think about falling in love and having relationships more broadly. It's, it's so it's this it's this weird kind of like like three three part balancing act of american conservative gun culture and the libidinal nature and heteronormativity of firearms in televisual language with homosocial bonding and then with dudes talking about falling in love with their sweethearts so it's it's like god there's too much going on in twin peaks episodes for 30 minute uh podcast reviews sometimes um yeah i mean yes we're gonna should we we're gonna have to wrap it up here but like Still the discourse unfolds. Still the mystery is still to come. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.